Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. Today is Saturday, September 4th, 2021. And the article that I'm going to be reviewing today was published just a couple days ago in Lancet Respiratory Medicine on September 1st, 2021. And it is titled, Efficacy and Safety of Baricitinib for the Treatment of Hospitalized Adults with COVID-19. This trial was a randomized double-blind parallel group placebo-controlled phase 3 trial. So, checks up all the boxes of what you would want in a clinical trial. Now that tocilizumab has been so difficult to obtain, and many of us can't even get it at our respective institutions, and obviously this is of September of 2021 at the beginning of the month, we honestly need another therapy to help improve outcomes in patients with COVID-19 who are both hospitalized as well as critically ill. Baricitinib has now shown to be a potential agent to help us out with these patients. This type of medication is a Janus kinase 1-2 inhibitor and it has anti-inflammatory properties. Those of us who have been taking care of COVID patients and have been keeping up with the literature are well aware that COVID is an inflammatory disease. So coupled with corticosteroids, this should improve patient outcomes. The key word is it should. But let's look at the data and see if baricitinib really helps to improve outcomes in COVID-19 patients. So let's start off with a spoiler alert. It does decrease mortality in patients on high flow nasal cannula as well as non-invasive ventilation. When I say non-invasive ventilation, I mean patients who are on CPAP or BiPAP. I'm going to go ahead and say that although this isn't the magic pill we all hope and wish it is, it does decrease mortality with a number needed to treat of 20 with the use of corticosteroids in hospitalized patients. The special sauce in this particular medication comes out in patients who are, quote, hospitalized, receiving non-invasive ventilation or high flow oxygen. This is the patient population where the number needed to treat drops to 8.3. In contrast, tocilizumab, the other agent that we were using before, the IL-6 agent, the monoclonal antibody, had a number needed to treat of 25 for mortality in all, cover- in all comers based on the recovery trial. So you might say, hmm, baricitinib 20, Tocilizumab 25, so therefore baricitinib should be better. But it's a, it's quite a bit dishonest to go and compare the number needed to treat between different studies, because um, you know it's, it's not the exact same patient population. There are other caveats to all that. But all in all, you know, just just take that into account. The next question that many of you might have is, what is the mechanism of action of this medication, of the baricitinib? And from a historical perspective, baricitinib has been used in other inflammatory diseases such as atopic dermatitis and rheumatoid arthritis. And again, how it works in these populations is by inhibiting the Janus Janus kinase enzymes. I honestly had to look this up because I can't say I know about these enzymes beforehand. But when I looked it up on UpToDate, they state that, quote, that Janus kinase enzymes are, quote, intracellular enzymes involved in stimulating hematopoiesis and immune cell function through a signaling pathway. What the hell does that mean? But then again, it says, up to date says, in response, quote, in response to extracellular cytokine and growth factor signaling, JAKs activate signal transducers and activators of transcription. Okay, what does this do? It regulates gene expression and intracellular activity. So what happens is that inhibition of JAKs prevents the activation of these uh, signal transducers and activators of transcription. And what it does is that it reduces serum IgG, IgM, IgA, as well as C-reactive protein. 
If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The next question is, what COVID patient population does baricitinib help in? Well, this is a little bit encouraging. Focusing on the mortality endpoint, which was a secondary endpoint and that has its own limitations. If you take into account everyone who was enrolled in the study and then notice that there is an all-cause mortality benefit in all comers. But let's say that you're running low on resources and have to triage who gets the medication and who doesn't. The authors ended up using a type of score called the NIAID slash OS score to rank severity. What they found is that there was no benefit in patients who were on room air. I can't say that I was surprised here that there was no benefit because there were less than 100 people in each arm of this group. That's not that's not sufficiently powered to find a mortality benefit, especially in patients who are, you know, just on room air. I also wonder why all these patients were on room air and hospitalized, but I digress. There was no benefit in patients who were on run-of-the-mill supplemental oxygen either. This means patients who are on like nasal cannula or penny masks. These, these will be a, a, the group of patients who are on less than high flow and non-invasive ventilation. Some would say that there's a trend towards a benefit in this patient group, but that's a, that's a discussion for a different day. We're looking at concrete evidence here, not, not trends. The group that had the greatest benefit was in those who were on high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation, which I mentioned before is a group that's either on BiPAP or CPAP. I don't know what, what to do with the fact that when you really take a good analysis of the subgroup analysis, it seems that the patients who got baricitinib without corticosteroids seem to do better than those who got baricitinib with corticosteroids. I have to ask myself when I read this, is this a signal that we need to be investigating this further? Is baricitinib something that's better suited as a monotherapy? And it also seems that combining baricitinib with remdesivir doesn't really help. But again, I've already expressed my concerns with remdesivir sufficiently at this point. One of the factors that makes me happy about this study is that baricitinib seems to work on a broad spectrum of disease duration. What I mean by that is like, you know, you always want to give these therapies early in the patient's course of hospitalization and early in the course of presentation because the sooner you treat these therapies, the better. The sooner you treat this inflammatory cascade, the better. And when you treat the patients with a disease duration of, <clears throat> excuse me, less than less than seven days, the number needed to treat is 11.1. If the patients show up to the hospital and get the medication after seven days of disease duration, this number increases to 25, which is definitely not good. But, you know, that's an all-commerce. They did not do a subgroup analysis looking at, you know, the people who uh, the people who were on high flow as well as uh, non-invasive ventilation and less than seven days of disease duration. And, you know, high flow plus uh, non-invasive ventilation and greater than seven days. They didn't do the subgroup analysis, but uh, I'd be interested to see what at least trends they found in that direction. Maybe they omitted it for a reason. Who knows? But what they also found was that baricitinib helps COVID patients who are younger, in, in other words, less than 65 years old, more than in patients who are older, greater than 65. But that was a trend, and it was not statistically significant, with a p-value of 
0.072. Again, we're looking for p-values less than 0.05. So the question that many people have been asking me is, will I be using baricitinib in my practice for COVID-19 patients? The answer to that is yes. And in fact, I've actually been using it for several weeks since tocilizumab has now been out of stock. And again, you got to make sure the patient doesn't have an underlying infection. That's just very important. As well as stay tuned because I'm going to talk a little bit about the black box warnings that just came out for baricitinib a couple days ago from the FDA. But given how incredibly ill many of these patients with the Delta variant get, it's my belief that the sooner that this therapy is initiated, the better. Outside of the groups that were specified in the study as not being candidates for the therapy, i.e. patients with liver failure, renal failure, secondary infection, etc., I will be providing this therapy to my patients. But again, this is not medical advice, and you should definitely read this article for yourself. Now, with regards to the black box, black box warnings, uh, there's a pharmacist who works with me. His name is Amin, who uh, he sent me a lot of the data for baricitinib earlier in the pandemic. And um, he also was the one who pointed out that in the last couple of days, there's a new black box warning from the FDA. So you have to be careful because all these all these medications, you know, for example, tocilizumab as well as baricitinib, they, they, they suppress your immune system. And one has to be aware that you could get secondary infections from this, although the adverse effects between the control group as well as the experimental group in the study that I just reviewed show no increase in uh, no increase in secondary infections. But again, you could also you could always have serious infections that lead to hospitalization or death. Um, you know, if the patient if you do suspect that the patient does have a secondary infection, you should not give them this medication. Another thing that's specified in the black box warning is that we should test for latent tuberculosis uh, prior to starting this uh, this particular medication. So keep that in mind. And also that lymphoma and other malignancies have been observed in patients treated with baricitinib. And in the black box warning, they use the brand name of this medication. Now, the one that catches my eye the most is the fact that, quote, thrombosis, including deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and arterial thrombosis, some fatal, have occurred in patients treated with baricitinib. So, so this one's a little bit hard, right? Because we know that patients who um, patients with COVID-19 tend to be prothrombotic, you know, have DVTs, PEs, etc. So I, one would have to look into this a little bit further to figure out if, you know, just a 14-day course of paracetamol would be sufficient to actually cause these manifestations in patients or are we going to have to just put these patients on anticoagulation to prevent this altogether? It's just it's just a tricky subject and we, we honestly don't know the answer definitively at this point, at least given the data that I've reviewed myself. But overall, I mean, you know, it, it's just there, it's just a really tough uh, tough thing to, to contemplate with all this. But overall, um, hopefully you all learned something from this podcast. If you did, I appreciate your support. Give me a good rating on iTunes and whatever podcast service you listen to this on. Hope you guys have a fantastic weekend. Thanks a lot. Bye. Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. Today is the 22nd of October of 2021, and today I'm going to be discussing end expiratory occlusion as a method that we could use in our critically ill patients who are on mechanical ventilation as a method to determine whether a patient is going to benefit from IV fluids. In other words, is this patient fluid or volume responsive? Now, the reason why this is important is because only 50% of critically ill patients are fluid responsive. 
And we know that 66% of patients in septic shock are volume overloaded in hospital day one. That means we're giving patients way, way, way too much fluids. But there are a number of different ways that we could assess whether a patient's going to benefit from fluids or not. And I've discussed before, and I plan on discussing some more about using passive leg raise, pulse pressure variation, stroke volume variation, things of that nature to determine fluid responsiveness in our patients. But today, I'm going to be discussing a different type of method that you may not have heard of before. And as a matter of fact, to be completely transparent with you, I had not really heard of this much before either until I embarked in this whole volume responsiveness slash fluid responsiveness endeavor that I started going on approximately three to four years ago. Because, you know, this this is not stuff that's necessarily taught uh, very often unless you really go down the rabbit hole. And so that's why I appreciate you joining me on this journey as we all go down this rabbit hole together. The first question is, what is end expiratory occlusion testing? Well, first of all, it's a method that we could use at the bedside to determine whether a patient is fluid responsive. We've actually known about this since 2009 when Xavier Monet, who's one of the legends in critical care, explored this concept. See, the way that it works is a little bit too difficult for me to explain in the pod, in a podcast form. It has to do with the heart-lung interaction, which could be a 30 to 45-minute podcast on its own if we really get to the, to the thick of things. But what we want to do here is provide information that's actually going to be useful at the bedside. And since 2009, there have been at least 12 additional studies that have been published in, on, this, uh, on the subject of end expiratory occlusion testing. Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. Today is the 22nd of October of 2021. And today I'm going to be discussing end expiratory occlusion as a method that we could use in our critically ill patients who are on mechanical ventilation as a method to determine whether a patient is going to benefit from IV fluids. In other words, is this patient fluid or volume responsive? Now, the reason why this is important is because only 50% of critically ill patients are fluid responsive. And we know that 66% of patients in septic shock are volume overloaded in hospital day one. That means we're giving patients way, way, way too much fluids. But there are a number of different ways that we could assess whether a patient's gonna benefit from fluids or not. And I've discussed before, and I plan on discussing some more about using passive leg raise, pulse pressure variation, stroke volume variation, things of that nature to determine fluid responsiveness in our patients. But today, I'm going to be discussing a different type of method that you may not have heard of before. And as a matter of fact, to be completely transparent with you, I had not really heard of this much before either until I embarked in this whole volume responsiveness slash fluid responsiveness endeavor that I started going on approximately three to four years ago. Because, you know, this this is not stuff that's necessarily taught uh, very often unless you really go down the rabbit hole. And so that's why I appreciate you joining me on this journey as we all go down this rabbit hole together. The first question is, what is end expiratory occlusion testing? Well, first of all, it's a method that we could use at the bedside to determine whether a patient is fluid responsive. We've actually known about this since 2009 when Xavier Monet, who's one of the legends in critical care, explored this concept. See, the way that it works is a little bit too difficult for me to explain in the pod, in a podcast form. It has to do with the heart-lung interaction, which could be a 30 to 45-minute podcast on its own if we really get to the, to the thick of things. But what we want to do here is 
provide information that's actually going to be useful at the bedside. And since 2009, there have been at least 12 additional studies that have been published in, on, this, uh, on the subject of expiratory occlusion testing. 